I think it's true, and you certainly know this, that Scripture records some real, real spectacular births. The birth of Isaac to a barren woman nearly 100 years old who was actually laughing at the thought of having a child was a miraculous event, was it not? 100 years of age. I think of the womb of Manoah's barren wife was opened and she gave birth to a man by the name of Samson who turned a lion inside out, killed a thousand men and pulled down a pagan temple as his last heroic act. Then there is, of course, in the Old Testament, the birth of Samuel the prophet, born to barren at least one time Hannah, whose womb the Lord had shut and was a providential birth. And then as you come to the New Testament, Elizabeth was barren and she gave birth to her son, a man that we know as John the Baptist, whom Jesus said no one was greater among those born of women. However, amidst all of the births recorded in Scripture, the virgin birth of our Lord Jesus Christ and His birth surpasses all of those. Exactly who is this child that first established the world's calendars? Who is he? Who is this child whose life has impacted more souls than all the other influential people in history combined? Who is he? Who is this child who determines the eternal destiny of every human who has ever or will ever be born? The beautiful Christmas carol asks, What child is this who was laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping? I mean, those are the questions for us this morning. Who is this child who was born? And maybe a second question where we'll drive to is how will you respond to him at this Christmas season? What I want to do for our time here in the Word of God this morning is take a look at Luke's Gospel. So if you have your Bible, look at it in Luke's Gospel, chapter 2. And I want to refresh our hearts with the Lord's birth. And I want to look with you at chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. So we're going to take a, a big look this morning. And I want to track and trace our thoughts along three scenes that lead to one response to the one whom Christmas is all about. Okay? Three scenes that direct our thoughts to only one response to the one whom Christmas is all about. The first scene is, we'll just call it the historical paradox of his birth. The historical paradox of his birth. As we approach Luke chapter 2, Luke really just sets forth in these opening seven verses the historical narrative for our Lord's birth. I'm going to 
choose to put it in that language as you shall see the historical paradox. Follow with me as I read the opening seven verses of Luke 2. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And they were there, and the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them at the end. And there you have it. In that opening statement there in verse 1, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. And though Caesar Augustus thought he was ruling the region, God, as you read here in this text, was ruling over the universe. Caesar's decree, likely here, was for tax purposes, and it moves Mary and Joseph 90 miles. That's quite a trip. I don't know if you knew that. Roughly 90 miles from Nazareth to here, Bethlehem, to put them at the right place at the time of our Lord's birth. I say at the right place and thus the right time because Micah in the Old Testament foretold that Messiah's birth would be in the city of Bethlehem. He said in his prophecy in chapter 5 of Micah verse 2, O Bethlehem, he said, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. But he was prophesied to come from Bethlehem. And so now this decree by Caesar Augustus moves Mary and Joseph 90 miles to Bethlehem so that he would be the fulfillment of the prophecy. I love that statement. It's from of old and from ancient days. So Grace Church, imagine as Caesar sleeps in his palace, unbeknown to him, the ultimate king has arrived on the scene whose coming forth is from old. That's his, his I call it his stage name, Caesar. His, his real name was Gaius Octavius. Little did he know that in carrying out that decree that he was carrying out the sovereign plan of God. But as we read this morning, when our Lord arrived on the scene, there was really, on one hand, very little fanfare. In fact, God identified with us in one of the humblest ways possible. The the text just says, she gave birth. And on the one hand, that's all it says. It is a classic understatement. Think about who was born and think about what was said. She took the baby, our Lord Jesus Christ, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths. And it says that she laid him in a, what? In a manger. 
Now, there's no doubt that a manger was an animal feeding trough. But I think what you find here in the opening record of of this text in Luke 2 is that our Lord's birth was very ordinary. In fact, many people think that because of the mention of the, the word manger, they assume that Christ was born in a stable. <clears throat> but it's nowhere stated that he was born in a stable. It could be that he was. It's nowhere stated in all of the text, I think you know this, that animals were at the scene. I don't mean to, to rob your joy of that in the pictures that you have seen, but in no place in all of the records, whether it's in Luke or Matthew you know, Mark and John, no animals were ever stated to be there. I think it just, it catches its way in there because when he was born, he was laid in a manger. You recognize, as we said in the text, he he was born there because the text says that there was no room in the end. Now, that's all it says is there was no room in in the end, and we probably think certainly there was no room in the end, a census was being taken. And because the census was being taken, there's no doubt that Rome probably built up their military presence so that there would be no uprising with the amount of Jewish people that would come for this um, to be registered. But I always think when I grew up and showed my kids one of the one of the little videos, the man who opened the little box at the door said, there's no room, you know, and he was really rude. It doesn't say that he was rude. It just says there's no room at the end, but certainly a manger was his first crib. And Mary took that child and gift wrapped him, if you will. She took long strips of cloth and wrapped the arms and legs and the little body tightly She would do that for warmth, for security, and certainly, as the text will go on to say, that was for a sign for the shepherds to know that this indeed was Christ the Lord. But certainly, when you look at these opening seven verses, I think the point merging out of the text is this is just a normal little baby. I mean, physically, he looked like any other child. Physically, He was treated like any other child. There were no royal robes that were put on him. There was no little halo over his head. He was born in a stable, beloved. He was not born in a palace. He was laid in a manger, not laid in a pretty bassinet. I mean, the utter contrast between the birth simplicity And the child's greatness could not be greater. I mean, this is why I titled it the historical paradox of his birth. Few realize that the eternal, holy, creator God of the universe had just entered the world into human form. I mean, in many ways, it is a paradox. It is an un thinkable entrance into the world for God's only begotten Son. The sweat, the pain, the coldness, possibly even the manure and the straw and the stench. I mean, it's an incredible thought that a stable became a throne room. 
I mean, imagine the paradox even in these opening verses from earlier in Luke's gospel from an angel saying to Mary just a chapter earlier, he will be great and he will be called the son of the most high to she laid him in a manger. I mean, it's an absolute paradox. You go from greetings, the angel said to Mary, you highly favored one, the Lord is with you, to there is no room for them in the end. It's a tremendous historical paradox. I think when Paul wrote 2 Corinthians 8 9, he must have had part of this in his mind when he said that you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through so that you by his poverty might become rich. And though his birth was as ordinary as any, this child was at the center of the angel's proclamation. So I take you from the historical paradox of his birth to secondly, the angel's proclamation of his birth. I mean, this is not all that took place. Pick up the text in chapter 2, verse 8. It says, in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That is the angel's proclamation of his birth. If you just back up a minute here, the angel who appeared in the temple to Zacharias would be the angel that would appear to Mary in her room, would be the angel who would appear to Joseph in a dream. Now he will appear to the shepherds to announce the greatest news ever proclaimed in the entire world. And if you just step back just for a moment, the angel's proclamation was given to, I don't mean this in a condescending way, but it was given to a ragtag group of shepherds, clearly revealing the grace of God. In other words, the angel's proclamation didn't come to a group of priests. The angel's proclamation didn't come to a a group of scribes. It didn't come to the Sanhedrin. It didn't come to the political figures. It is a portrait of the grace of God. Look at verse 10, or even backing up there. It says that the glory of the Lord shone all around them. So as the angel makes this proclamation, it, it just you, you've seen that before. You've memorized it. The glory of the Lord shone all around them. So what is the glory of the Lord? What is that? Well, I could be brief here. The the glory of the Lord, you remember from the Old Testament, was the physical manifestation of God. Our God, it says in John 4.24, does not have flesh and bones. He is a spirit, that we know. 
But in the Old Testament, often his glory, it was called the Shekinah glory, would be the brilliant presence of a bright light. That bright light was the physical representation of God with his people. And so as the Lord Jesus Christ is born, you can see there that the angel, verse 9, appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord, you see that in 9, shone around them. And you note the response there in verse 9, they were filled with great, what? Terror. It's amazing. It's not like they thought this is cool. They were filled with absolute terror. Not too long ago, I was at Disneyland taking in the the sights and the parade one particular evening. And of course, they did their, their parade of lights or their show of lights. I must say that as the lights all drop on Disneyland and as this parade weaves its way down Main Street and other places, it is a brilliant show. But beloved, can you imagine though the brilliancy of the glory of God that when he in Matthew 17 was transfigured before the disciples, they fell at their feet. That light was so brilliant. And so though he had a very ordinary birth, here the angel's proclamation and that light show on the hills of Bethlehem must have been incredible. I mean, that hill of Bethlehem became the amphitheater for the greatest light show in human history. And these shepherds here were filled with fear. But you know that the terror and the fear gave way to one of the greatest proclamations in all of the Bible. Look at it again. It says there in verse 10, the angel said to them, fear not, and here's why. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Of course, that word there, the good news, the euangelion in the Greek, is simply but profoundly the good news of the gospel. So even here at the birth of our Savior, of course, his birth was good news. And the good news you can see there in verse 11 was of great joy. And the joy, amazingly, in verse 10, shall be for all the people. For all the people. But the good news is expressed very, very clearly in the next verse. For unto you is born this day in the city of David. And here's the good news expressed in a statement. A Savior who is Christ the Lord. Here is the good news of the gospel itself. And the good news is unpacked in three titles that our Lord has given that is stated here. He is first, the reason for the good news is he's a savior. He's a savior. It is the greatest news the world has ever heard. I mean, just stop there just for a second. As you move into your family Christmas, okay, this is the meaning of Christmas. That if you can fathom in your finite mind as mine is, that born that day, Here the angels proclaim, was born for you a Savior. That is the meaning of Christmas. God sent a Savior. He did not send a judge. 
That's next week's message in John 3. For God did not send his son in the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. He sent a savior, a savior to deliver us from judgment. Look in your Bible if it's open there in your lap. Just back one chapter. Here in chapter 1, in verse 47, we call it the Magnificent, or the Magnificat, if you will, there when Mary was giving praise to the Lord. And you'll note in verse 46, Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. And now this in 147, My spirit rejoices in God. There's that phrase. My Savior. Very clearly stated there. Her spirit is rejoicing in God, my Savior. And that was an often expressed term in the Old Testament, speaking of the character of God, that God was a Savior. He was a deliverer. He was a rescuer. But now as you come to the New Testament, it is a title for Christ at his birth. That though there is a historical paradox in his birth, the angels proclaim that born for you that day is a Savior. Matthew in his gospel, it says there in 121, she will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. That's why he's a Savior. Listen, if you're in Christ this morning, it doesn't matter if you've been in Christ just for a year or you've been in Christ for 20 years, maybe 50 years. Born for you as a Savior, to save you from your sins. Born for you was the deliverer of your sins. Born for you as the one who would rescue you from your sins and he becomes a Savior, you well know, not by his birth, but by his, his death. He dies on the cross. But he's not just the Savior. Look back at the text again in 2.11. It's just born for you this day in the city of David as a Savior who is Christ. In other words, he is the Messiah. He is literally the promised anointed one of the Old Testament as those prophecies came time and time again. He was the anointed one, the promised one, the Messiah who was prophesied in the Old Testament. So born that particular day was a Savior who was Christ, but there's more there. The language of the text is pushing us to this last phrase. Look at verse 11 of chapter 2. Who is Christ the what? The Lord. It is a title of deity. Lord. In the Old Testament, Lord, the word we use in Greek, kurios, was used over 6,000 different times to represent Yahweh, to represent God. It is a proper name, is that title Lord, a proper name for God affirming His sovereign power and His authority. So when it says that Jesus is Lord... You are confessing Him as God and all that that implies. Listen, Grace Church of the Valley, at this moment, it is the greatest moment in the history of the world. That baby that was born and laid in a manger is God Himself. He is a Savior. He is Christ. He is Christ the Lord. In fact, look back at the text in verse 12. 
Here, this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And that just affirms the angel's pronouncement. It is not startling that the baby is wrapped up. What is startling is who that child is and where he is. That child is a Savior. That child is Christ the Lord. That child was born, at least we would think, somewhere in an adjacent room, maybe even in the back of a cave, many believe. But maybe they're laid in a manger. Maybe there were animals there. It it, it could not be a more startling contrast. But the angel's proclamation turned into praise really quick. It was one angel who was announcing that to the shepherds. But look again at verse 13. Incredibly, put yourself on that scene. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. I mean, if you can just imagine that moment, all heaven, angels, if you will, broke loose in praise. And the praise could not be contained on that hillside. In fact, the angel's proclamation is joined. It's hard to tell how many. We would just say by a multitude of angels. Now you'll look there. It says there was a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God. How many is that? We, we don't know. We don't know exactly how many is a, is a multitude. We do know from Revelation 5.11, it states something like a thousand times 10,000. And the Greek word there in Revelation is the Greek word murion. And murion speaks of 10,000. And it is the highest number there is in the Greek language. And we don't know if John in the book of Revelation, is just using that for hyperbole and and writing thousands upon thousands. Or if literally there was this one angel and then angels breaking in, glorifying God, and there were thousands of them praising God on that hillside. Now, you'll know what they said. Look at verse 14. And, And this isn't in my notes, but it just came into my mind, okay? But it says, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, what? Peace. When I was at Disneyland, okay, sorry, um, there, there was a statement that came up at the water show on peace on earth. And you sit there and see peace on earth, and you think, Nothing could be further from the truth, right? Especially in our day. Nothing is further from the truth of peace on earth. We live in the midst of hostility. You well know that. But I thought to myself, it just didn't contain the second phrase there. And the second phrase is, is what's helpful. Look at verse 14. It says, on earth, peace. And then this little phrase in verse 14. Among those with whom he is... What? Pleased. He's not pleased with all. It's peace among those with whom he is pleased. And I even believe it's a reference there to the sovereignty of God. 
It's peace on earth to those with whom God Himself is well pleased, is the thought. In fact, in other places, you well know that He came not to bring peace, but a what? A sword. And so you recognize biblical truth here, but on that day, when the angels broke out, myriad by myriad, thousands upon ten thousands, they were saying glory to God in the highest. And, and on earth, peace among men whom he is well pleased. So the historical paradox of a lowly manger and a very humble birth turns into a proclamation of praise by the angels. So heaven itself, beloved, proclaims the identity of this child who was born. But I take you to this third and final scene. It's the shepherd's praise of his birth. The shepherd's praise of his birth. And it's almost as though you go from the angelic community to the human element here. To the human being and their response to the birth of this child. Pick up the text in 15 and I'll go through 17. It says, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem. And see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. Here's the shepherd's praise. And, you know, I say the shepherds because God selected a rugged group of hard-working men to be the first witnesses that the Son of God had come into the world. Do you see that in the text there in chapter 2 when it says there that they went with haste? One translation says they came in a hurry and one writer said it is the first Christmas rush. They came very, very quickly And look what they said in verse 18 after they had told them concerning this child in 17. 2.18 says, And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds had told them. They wondered. But literally in the text, they were amazed. As the shepherds came back from this event and told them what they had seen and what they had heard, they were amazed. But look at Mary's response in 20 verse 2 verse 19, excuse me. Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. So some were amazed. She pondered. I mean, privately, her amazement has been incubating for about nine months. Is that fair? The angels had already earlier in the Gospels given a message to her. You remember Elizabeth and and Elizabeth's prayer for Mary. And now the shepherds come to her and report all that they have seen and heard. And so now she's pondering all these things in her heart. But here's the key. Look at verse 20. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God 
for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. So the shepherds of all people, beloved, had the wonderful privilege to set their eyes on the Christ child and communicate what they had seen and heard. Now, you'll note there, look again at verse 20. The shepherds returned, and it says this, glorifying and praising God. What does that mean? We use that phrase a lot. But when they, you know, sometimes the word is glory. Sometimes the word is glorifying. And there's different nuances of that word. But God's glory, if you will, okay, is his honor. Um, I'm pausing how much I should say here. When you look at the Old Testament term for glory, it is the Hebrew term kavod, okay? And it, it describes something that is heavy. In fact, sometimes heavy was used literally of a man who might have been overweight, the judge. He was heavy and he fell over backwards. He was kavod, that's literal. But it doesn't, it doesn't mean that. It means here metaphorically heavy, that God's glory is his character is what it is. His glory, beloved, is his honor. To say it another way, his glory is his excellent reputation. So let me put it this way. To glorify God, that's what the shepherds did, is to enhance the reputation of God. It is to enhance, if you will, the praise of God. It is to enhance, when you're glorifying, the honor of God. And someone here in this text, the shepherds, are describing themselves as glorifying. And so they are describing, if you will, the honor that should be given to God. Now, practically... Practically, maybe just it might help you catch it just a little bit. In 1 Corinthians 6.20, and I say this to the young people, or I could say it to everyone, that you have been bought with a price, so what? Glorify God in your, what? Body. I mean, it gets that, that practical. You have been bought with a price, So glorify God in your body. Take that body and glorify Him. Honor Him. Honor His reputation is the thought. Enhance His reputation. Enhance His praise. Enhance His honor by the way that you treat your body and what you do with your body and with whom you do that with. You are to honor and glorify God in your body. Practically, in 1 Peter 4, it's talking about Christian suffering. And Peter there said, If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. If you enter into suffering of some kind because of your at work or because of your school or because of your testimony, if you begin to suffer, listen, don't be ashamed but let him glorify God. Let your suffering and your humiliation be a way 
that practically you can enhance the name of God and the person of God and the glory of God and the fame of God and the honor of God. Whoever, Peter said, speaks as one who speaks, speaks the oracles of God. All of you have been given a spiritual gift. Every single one of you. I mean, that, what are you doing with it? And I say that to encourage you. What are you doing with the gift that he gave you when you came to Christ? Whoever speaks, as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves, right, in whatever capacity, as one who serves in the strength that God supplies, because you might be saying there, I don't, I don't know if I can do it. You serve in the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So you speak and you serve in the strength he gives for this reason, that you may glorify and honor and esteem the reputation of God, that your life would reverberate back in praise to the one who bought you. And then it says, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. So here, those angels, because of what they said, and now the shepherds, their response was, in 2.20, they returned. Do you get it? Glorifying and praising God is the thought. Now, just come back with me just for a second here. Remember, I said in the Old Testament that the glory of God was a brilliant light. It was the cloud by day, the fire by night, it led them. What was it that was leading them? God's presence was there with them. And so he manifested himself to them by way of a bright light. But of course, as you come to the New Testament, it says that the glory of God shone around them. In other words, he showed that light again. But in the New Testament, beloved, as you continue on, His honor, God's honor, God's glory is found in the person of who? Christ. So why do you say that? Well, because Hebrews says, speaking of the person of Christ, that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. I love that statement. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So here they were glorifying God. And you understand it just means they were enhancing the reputation of God. Praising God. And honoring God is the thought. Look back at Luke 2.20. This is the shepherd's praise. They return. It says glorifying. And then it just says praising God. And you know you, you say what is that? Because this is what you're supposed to do, right? You have a family here. Your family, fathers, should be glorifying God, should be praising God. And to praise God is, it's this simple. You can do all the word studies you want on it, but it means to express approval of God, to tell of God. So glorifying God and praising God and blessing God. And here the angels glorified God. And here now are the shepherds glorifying and praising God. Now you know what's interesting? 
Take a little journey with me, a quick one. Look back in chapter 1. This is regarding Zechariah after his father. Remember when he had to name him and in 163, and he asked for a writing tablet, and he wrote uh, his name as John. He could have probably just wrote that on his iPad today, right? But he, he wrote his name as John, and they all wondered, right? And now 64, immediately his mouth was opened, and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, and what did he do? He blessed God. I love that little phrase. He blessed God. What do you mean? He praised God. He glorified God as is the thought. Look over at Luke chapter 2, the very text that we are in this morning. When Simeon, you remember, they brought the child in, and he came in 227 in the spirit into the temple. And when his parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him in his arms and what? Blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. But he blessed God. Zechariah earlier blessed and praised God. Look over at Luke chapter 5 just for a moment. You know the account. It's the account of the paralytic. I won't go into all of it. I think you know it well, and uh, we'll look at it later. But it says in after he had healed him, when he said, rise, pick up your bed and go home at the end of 524, 525, immediately he rose up before them, picked up what he had been lying on and went home. And what was he doing? Glorifying God. In other words, enhancing his name, enhancing his reputation. Now, let me, let me say this to you. Uh, you know, sometimes when you're up front, a lot of things just start to pop into your mind, Okay. And it's hard for me because I did my doctoral dissertation on God's glory. But let me be clear with you. You don't add to God's glory. You don't add to it. God's glory is intrinsic to who he is. Man's glory, we glorify things because of what people are and what people do. So when I pastored in Chicago and I'd go into the stadium... And Michael Jordan, humanly speaking, was brilliant. I mean, I could watch him one night sitting on the floor. My friend had tickets on the floor. Drop 35, and he barely looked like he was sweating. He was good. So after he was done, they put a big, you know that one, out front? You know, it's a statue of him. And there have been times when I've been to the stadium where people will just come up, take pictures, I've seen people bow down towards it. That's human glory. They're ascribing to him something he did. But understand with God, his glory is intrinsic to who he is. You do not make God more glorious. He is glorious. But the point would be is that you glorify him because you're praising him and blessing him. And here the paralytic right there as you saw went home glorifying God, enhancing his reputation. See, look over at Luke 13. Let me just show you a few more. Luke 13. Okay. It's the woman. It says that she had a disabling spirit. I I take that that she had some kind of demonic influence, okay? And there was a woman, and I'm in 1311 of Luke, 1311. 
who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. So what did it do? Well, she was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. And in 12, when Jesus saw her, he called her over and he said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she, what? Glorified God. She blessed God. She praised God. In other words, she's not adding to his glory. It's intrinsic. But it was an expression of his greatness and her response to him. Look over at Luke 17. You remember this one, of course. Luke 17 you remember when he healed, certainly you do, the ten lepers? And one of them, and I'm in 1715, one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now, he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus said, we're not the ten cleansed, where are the nine And was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner. He praised God for what he had done. That's the here's the response. Look over one more chapter, chapter 18, a couple more. You remember the account of the blind beggar? He drew near to Jericho in 1835, and a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front, imagine this, rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he had came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord... Let me recover my sight. And in 1842, Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, I love that little phrase, gave praise to God. This is the response. So herein, beloved, in Luke's gospel, if you will, are three scenes, the historical paradox of his birth, the angelic pronouncement of his birth, and thirdly, the shepherd's praise of his birth. And I said there's three scenes that lead to just one appropriate response, and that is to glorify and praise God. And that's your response this morning. You have a Savior who would go to the cross to take away your sin and to take away your guilt. You have Christ, the long prophesied one out of the Old Testament, who would right the wrongs, and one day he will do that. And you have the Lord, who has and will defeat all of our enemies, and he is sovereign over all. So I asked earlier, what child is this who was laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping? Who was this child? Well, he is the Savior. He is the Christ. He is the Lord. Many years ago now, there was a, there was a great song. Do you remember it? By Mark Lowry. And it's called, Mary Did You Know? I love the words of this. I think it's going to come up here on the screen. Mary, did you know 
that your baby boy would one day walk on water? Did you know that your baby boy would save our sons and daughters? Did you know that your baby born has come to make you new? This child that you delivered will soon deliver you. Mary, did you know that your baby boy will give sight to the blind man? Did you know that your baby boy would calm a storm with his hand? Did you know that your baby boy has walked where angels trod? And when you kiss your little baby, you've kissed the face of God. The blind will see, the deaf will hear, the dead will live again, the lame will leap, the dumb will speak, the praises of the Lamb. And here's how it finishes. Mary, did you know that your baby boy is Lord of all creation? Did you know that your baby boy will one day rule the nations? Did you know that your baby boy was heaven's perfect lamb? The sleeping child you're holding is the great what I am. That's who he is. And your only response to him is to glorify him, is to, is to praise him. Dads, at Christmas, you ought to be filled with unspeakable joy for this event. Juniors in high school, sophomores in high school, freshmen, junior high, you ought to just be filled with praise. Moms this morning, you ought to be filled and lost in the wonder. Pastors and deacons and deaconesses, we ought to be filled with awe and wonder. And our life ought to be to ever live to enhance and honor and praise and glorify His name. I mean, what's clear here in the text is that heaven and earth both proclaimed His birth. And what's interesting is that the shepherds became worshipers. And the worshipers became proclaimers and they told everybody in the text about this child and so should we, right? That's the point of the passage. Three scenes. It leads to one response and the shepherd's response has to be my response and it has to be your response. So my prayer is that we would follow the Savior Christ who was born. Amen?